This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the Black Lives Matter movement has prompted many institutions, including media ones, to re-examine their own records on race and diversity. Historically, RNZ has predominantly had Pākehā personnel and output attracting predominantly Pākehā people. And a few years ago, it was called out for failing to feature enough Māori content and voices. They have clearly preference Pākehā culture over Māori culture. But you need to give us a chance to change, <clears throat> Willie, and we are changing it. Four years later, we ask what has changed and what's the plan from here. Also, we look at how a political party's been boosted by a legal challenge to the media and an apology from a big-name broadcaster. And then I think it's a marvellous result. <laughs> but first, the story of the Blues. After a tonne of turbulence at the top, Judith Collins has the National Party's top job and she's captured the imagination of the political press pack. But before that, Todd Muller woke up one morning and quit. And just to repeat that news that is just breaking, Todd Muller has resigned as leader of the opposition. He has issued a statement saying it's become clear to me that I'm not the best person to be the leader of the opposition and leader of the New Zealand National Party at this critical time for New Zealand. For that reason, he said he was stepping down as leader effectively. And we'll be bringing you more on this breaking story throughout the problem. It's 18 minutes to eight. Philip Atolli on RNZ National's morning report on Tuesday with a slight slip there. But a problem it certainly was for the National Party. At that very moment, its MPs were on an emergency group call to discuss how to handle it. They decided on a caucus meeting at 7pm that night in Wellington, before which they all agreed to say nothing about who might want those top jobs and who they would back to take them. Though that didn't stop the media asking them about that at every step of their journeys to Parliament that day, as we'll hear. In the absence of MPs to comment on that, though, familiar political pundits who've been doing overtime lately did pick up the phone. Ben Thomas, a public relations consultant and a former National Government Press Secretary. Good morning to you. Morning, Giles. No one saw this coming, no one at all, did they? I, I did not see this coming. Um, I think the furthest reaches of left Twitter were suggesting that Muller would resign over the events of last week. So, you know, congratulations to them. However, Ben Thomas wasn't the only one with Twitter on his mind at that moment. Fascinating. We've got to keep the kids interested on Twitter. And we'd love to know what you think as well. Is this a good move for National? Who would you like to see jump into the hot seat, perhaps? The hosts of TBNZ's breakfast show there, taking in the news, and within minutes of it breaking, some journalists were polling their own followers on Twitter about who should be the National Party's next leader. While reporters got to work on compilations of the gaffes and missteps during Todd Muller's 53 days in charge, and there were a few to choose from in just the previous seven days, some wondered precisely why Todd Muller had quit at that time. TBNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay was keen to point out this to her viewers. I think the most important line in his statement that he sent out about half an hour ago is the role has taken a heavy toll on me personally and on my family and this has become untenable from a health perspective. Later that day, New Zealand Herald political editor Audrey Young wrote bluntly that Todd Muller had had a mental breakdown and that other politicians had recognised the breaking point. I mean, I am impressed with quite a few of the statements coming out from other leaders, um, you know, it's sort of a sense of compassion that this guy was possibly didn't realise the pressures of the job. However, not everyone was completely sympathetic. In a rapidly written opinion piece, Massey University Professor of Politics Richard Shaw said that Todd Muller quitting like this was symptomatic of a toxic political culture in New Zealand. 
What is it about the way we do this most human of activities that can cause someone this level of distress? What price do we expect people who put themselves forward for public office to pay? Is our politics broken? Good questions, but what might actually help? On RNZ's panel that afternoon, Professor Shaw offered this. Maybe what we need, Wallace, is a less personalised form of politics, one in which the political discourse is less attacking of a person. The ideas, I think, have to be up for grabs. Now, Professor Shaw wasn't pointing the finger at the media as part of the problem of personalised politics that he talked about there, but as this week unfolded, their intense focus on personalities leading our political parties was clear to see. And in hindsight, the unsettling effect of that could be seen on TVNZ's Sunday show the previous weekend. Do you also have to have a steely sort of backbone for this job? You do need steel, and I have it. When TVNZ's Rebecca Wright visited Mr and Mrs Muller at home in Tauranga recently, she sensed the couple's discomfort when confronted by the cameras straight away, even when he was just checking out the fridge. They're nervous about the media scrutiny. Right, what have we got here? Even over what's for dinner. Is that like okay? You know, I'm still traumatised by the hat. Last Tuesday, Nationals MPs clearly did not relish cameras and microphones confronting them as they made their way through airports and to Parliament. Is there any other job except perhaps professional sport where employees get pursued like that when their boss decides to quit? MP Nathan Guy was pictured on Prime TV's news bulletin that night sprinting away from a reporter outside Parliament, though they didn't explain exactly why. But a few MPs were willing to engage while giving nothing away. Judith Collins, for example, said this outside Parliament when she was asked by reporters how she reacted to the news of her leader quitting. Oh, I might have said a rude word. Which word? Oh, quite a big one. There we go. <laughs> That encounter was broadcast on NewsHub's website in full after an earlier one with Judith Collins at Auckland Airport on the way down. And NewsHub was determined to stick to the story and the MPs involved in it to the bitter end on Tuesday night. I've done a quick ring around of all of those six leadership contenders, Nikki Kay, Amy Adams, Simon Bridges, Paula Bennett, Judith Collins, Mark Mitchell. Unsurprisingly, none of them answered their phone, except for Nikki Kay, who accidentally answered and swiftly, when she realised what she'd done, hung up on me. None of them are saying anything, but Paula Bennett was spoken to one of our reporters who's out on the scene outside of Parliament at airports, just spoken to her again, and Paula Bennett isn't either ruling out a tilt at the leadership nor resigning from politics. And we've also spoken to Amy Adams for the first time today. She's not making any comment, and she's not ruling out a tilt at the leadership either. That was one of three live crosses to NewsHub's political editor Tova O'Brien during NewsHub at 6 that night, before the caucus meeting had even begun. At 7.30, NewsHub kicked off a live online special which ran right through the evening until they got a result. Mike McRobert's laptop didn't make it all the way through, but Tova O'Brien did, and having Press Secretary Janet Wilson on speed dial paid off with early confirmations of the leadership change via text. And Tova O'Brien said the choice of Judith Collins promised an epic election ahead, and the pundits and PR professionals who helped NewsHub fill the airtime that night saw all this not as a contest of ideas, but a contest of two leaders' personalities. Josie Pagani, for instance, put it like this. You kind of go, well, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, you know, who's going to be more fun at a party? Some people are going to think that. Some people are going to think, actually, this is game on. Uh, this is a real difference here. So all she has to do, because she's got that crusher thing really built in, she's tough, she's mean, uh, you know, she's the cat that plays with a nearly dead mouse, you know, all of that stuff. She's got all of that built in. All she has to do is kiss one baby and cuddle one puppy, and they'll all go, my God, she's kind as well. 
Now that's colourful stuff, but some people don't think the difference between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker is actually real or relevant to our politics, and many people aren't interested in whether Judith Collins would hug a puppy or torture a mouse. Meanwhile, NewsHub's Jenna Lynch reckoned that Judith Collins' battle-ready tongue could be decisive. It is in the little gestures, but it's also just that cutting tongue of hers. She has ta- basically taken out one of Jacinda Ardern's ministers. She took out Phil Twyford on housing. She is battle-ready to go into, uh, into battle with Jacinda Ardern. And having said that name recognition that Judith Collins enjoys would be critical to the election campaign to come, Trish Sherson said the other quality needed was this. If you're quite crass about it, what you're looking for in in this person is someone with more front than a rat with a gold tooth. (laughs) I mean, they really have to be able to to let it all wash over them. Whoever they choose has to really, really want this and really love it. Now, many pundits and reporters really seem to want Judith Collins as leader of National because of the prospect of a box office drama ahead. And unlike her predecessor, Judith Collins seems to relish the spotlight. But when the party's MPs, who were ranked second and third last Monday morning, both quit on Friday morning, pundit Ben Thomas said in Nikki Kay's case, the media might be part of the reason why. Having had her own health worries, if she's just come from the very high-stress position of being the deputy leader, seen Todd Muller's own health concerns, while she's dealing with that, she has reporters apparently peeking over her fence into her lounge room, uh, you know, reporting the contents of her kitchen table. You could understand why she might just say, you know what, why am I, why am I putting myself through this? Well, that was a reference to a stuff story published on Tuesday morning, which said Nikki Kay could be seen from about 8.30am pacing up and down, talking on her phone, with fresh flowers laying on the kitchen table. Now, that detail is no longer in that online story. Stuff probably realised that looking inside a politician's house is not a good look. But the same story also said this. People walking past Kay's home expressed sympathy for her plight. One woman, walking her dog, suggested Kay should have been at the top of the ticket, rather than Muller. Now that every woman and her dog has had a say in the media, on Todd Muller, Nikki Kay and others in opposition, let's hope the media focus swings out to the bigger issues than the party leaders' personalities before an election that could be critical for our post-COVID future. After the US was convulsed by the Black Lives Matter movement, sparked by the killing of George Floyd, people all over the world took to the streets demanding greater efforts to defeat racism where they live. Police forces, for example, have had to confront their own record on racism within their ranks, and so have many other businesses and industries, including the media. They've been forced to ponder whether they're part of the problem or part of the solution. Earlier this month here on Media Watch, we heard how one journalist who was asked to write about the issue for the New Zealand Herald was challenged by some of her sources to actually address the issue at the Herald itself. So she turned the lens on its own publisher, NZME, prompting the Herald's editor to say, we will do better. Now, RNZ has been challenged on this in the past as well and has also promised to do better. RNZ has a statutory duty set out in its charter to reflect New Zealand's cultural identity, including Māori language and culture. So, how is it doing on that these days? Hayden Donnell reports. In an interview on RNZ's midday report in June, the chair of a Māori-led inquiry into Oranga Tamariki, Dame Nida Glavish, got stuck. She couldn't find the right words to say in English. For many hosts, that might have caused an awkward impasse. Instead, this happened. I find it absolutely appalling that that 
our minister of the crown could use a throwaway comment, even if it was true, um, to abdicate her responsibility to her portfolio. I, I, I haven't got the I haven't got the proper English. Okay, well, katae kui ki te kōrero Māori e pānaki tērā. Nā, koe e tēnā tākou e, e, e matarikarika atu anau ki wena kōrero ko te mea ke, kaua e karo, kaua e huna, he nakua puta mai. Kei hea ke wau hakaro, kei hea ke wau mahi mō ngai tātou, te iwi Māori. Mō a tātou tamariki moko puna kei roto i o ringa-ringa i tēnei wā. So you've essentially said to the minister not to hide and, and to front up on this. Just another comment that she made was that she wasn't asked to officially respond to this report. If she hasn't been asked that, what do you expect of her? Well, I want to see her take responsibility for the failure of Oranga Tamariki in its leadership. You might not have heard that exchange on RNZ National eight years ago, when as an intern, Marnie Dunlop got censured for signing off a report in Tamaki Makoto instead of in Auckland. Her interview with Dame Nida was a sign of a change in RNZ's attitude to Te Māori on air. But it was also a reminder of what the broadcaster is still, for the most part, missing. Aside from Marnie Dunlop, first ups Indira Stewart and the panel's Wallace Chapman, the hosts of RNZ National's flagship daily news and current affairs programmes are all Pākehā. Its popular weekend morning shows are now both fronted by Pākehā as well. According to figures cited during its ill-fated push to launch a youth station, RNZ National's audience is more than 90% NZ European. Back in 2016, RNZ was harshly criticised for that lack of diversity by Willie Jackson, now Associate Minister of Māori Development, but then the Chief Executive of Urban Māori Broadcaster Radio Wātia. On Media Watch, he clashed with RNZ's then Head of Content, Carol Hirschfeld. You're more likely to hear a bird before a Māori uh, presenter. Uh, in 91 years on this uh, station, we've never had one frontline Māori presenter. I'm talking about frontline Monday to Friday. I'm talking about morning to night. I'm talking about morning report. We're talking about the, the afternoons. Are you telling me, Carol, not one Māori uh, is good enough to front a frontline national I, radio uh, news show? I'm it's absolutely a, a, not a, telling you that. And a, I'm looking you in well, the well, eye well, and I can well, tell you well, that we certainly yes. are addressing that situation. And I'm, sh- I'm sure you are, but it's an indictment on this organisation yep. that, that, that is an example of institutionalised racism in this country because they have clearly preferenced Pākehā culture over Māori culture. But you need to give us a chance to change, <clears throat> Willie, and we are changing it. Well, I, I, accept, I, I accept. That was Carol Hirschfeld arguing with Willie Jackson on Media Watch back in 2016. Though he disputed some of Willie Jackson's claims about the low level and range of Māori content, RNZ's chief executive Paul Thompson did say the thrust of his argument had merit. Soon after, RNZ released a strategy for a long-term commitment to Māori news journalism and Te It promised to promote the use of Te Reo Māori across RNZ's platforms, introduce a Māori journalism internship, and employ outstanding Māori staff in key roles. So how well has RNZ addressed the problem it acknowledged more than four years ago, and what's the plan from here? I spoke to Paul Thompson about RNZ's efforts to ensure diversity in its staff and content, and asked whether it's doing enough to serve the interests of all New Zealanders. The answer is we're not. 
Um, but it's really hard, you know, in any media company with limited resources to decide how you are going to look after current audiences who, who are really important while also making sure that we um, are ambitious about being able to connect with younger audiences at the same time. Those numbers um, tell their own story, but you know, the, the, there's another set of uh, data that I want to share with you which sort of puts a different light on it. So we, if you look across the whole population, and this work is done by Colmar Brunton, mm. 59% of New Zealanders each week consume RNZ content now, and that's either through... Um, our radio stations, our digital content, and through our third-party content sharing arrangements with all the media companies in New Zealand, which is a pretty good number. That's you know nearly six out of ten New Zealanders. The proportion of 18 to 34-year-olds who come to us each week is just a shade lower than that at 57%. So while we still have some really big challenges to make sure that we are there for all the people as our charter requires, our strategy is starting to give us some more diverse audience but of course we don't just want to rest on our laurels. These stats actually talk about actually New Zealand's ethnic makeup so we our audience at uh, at RNZ is 90% uh, Pākehā or NZ European and that compares to sort of 60 something percent of the actual population and in in the air, Those are on air numbers so yes definitely when you're talking about um, our listeners to our radio stations they skew more Pākehā and older, definitely. If you take a broader look, we are getting to more diverse audiences through different means, but that doesn't take away the challenge that you're, you're putting in front of me. RNZ is one of the two biggest taxpayer-funded broadcasters in the country, uh, and it's not just older Pākehā people that pay taxes. It's Māori and Pacifica people, it's Asian people that pay taxes, and are they really getting, I guess, value for money at the moment? Our charter talks about us being there for all of New Zealand and catering for all age groups, all ethnicities. You have to say that we need to do a lot more. The strategy, as I've explained, is getting us some of that diversity, but there's much more to do. The quality of the content for those audiences um, is very high, and that's available, obviously, to all people. But I think your question of whether we can do better, absolutely, we, we have to do better. And we can't just sit there and go, well, you know, it's too hard to look to adapt to new audiences and new ways of that they want to consume content. Those audiences which are hard to reach won't want to consume the content that works for other audiences, so you need to do new things. And one of the efforts that you actually made to do a new thing, the youth station obviously was actually aimed at uh, appealing to younger and Māori and Pacifica audiences. Now that that's been shelved, what are you actually doing to appeal to those audiences? It's not quite right that it's been shelved. I thought the interesting thing about the RNZ concert controversy was that the government's position was that RNZ needs to be there for all audiences, older and younger. And as a result of that, they invited us to um, talk to them about the options around those frequencies, which um, are tagged for a youth radio station in New Zealand. That invitation still stands, but... COVID has since intruded and we've just put that um, thinking on ice. We want to do what we can in the next few months to start to do some new things for those younger audiences. So we're doing some more research to make sure that we get the proposition right, that we understand what those audience needs are. And what it's likely to be is a, a raft of new content tailored for those younger audiences. 
Um, it's likely to make use of RNZ's expertise in the live recording of music. We'll definitely be working with our industry partners to share the content everywhere we can. A good example of that is New Zealand Hip Hop Stand Up, which will be released later this, this month, which I think is a good example of us starting to look at how we can connect with these people. But we think that we need to be where the audiences are, and some of these younger audiences are never, want to, never necessarily wanting to come into RNZ National or RNZ Concert, and we shouldn't try to force them to. Having said that, it's not just the younger audiences, it's these diverse audiences, and there yes. is an opportunity there. So in 2016, you were on the receiving end of a pretty scathing broadside from Willie Jackson, now Labour MP, and one of the things that he said is, uh, you're more likely to hear a bird before a Māori presenter on RNZ National. So, above all else, RNZ has never had a non-Pākehā host for any of its flagship daily shows, and he was talking then about morning report, nine to noon, afternoons, checkpoint, nights. Mm. That was in early 2016, and the question is, why hasn't that changed? Uh, well, it, it is changing. Uh, Marnie Dunlop is now um, doing a fantastic job hosting a much-strengthened midday report, Marnie's brought her Tereo skills, her knowledge of Te Ao Māori to that job. So yeah, we have got um, a change there, which I think is worth noting. And there's lots of good things that have happened in that time. And um, we've got a absolutely top Māori news reporting team that lead the way in setting the news agenda, and and their work is front and centre on all our programmes. The use of the Reo has definitely blossomed in RNZ since that time, in normalising the use of, of Tereo as part of New Zealand life. Jim Mather is now the chairman of RNZ and the former CEO of Māori Television is bringing a very strong uh, Māori perspective to that job and being very challenging for us. So I think we've, we're making good progress, there's, but there's lots more to do and I'm certainly not complacent about the challenge ahead. But when you look at those big ones, the big ones that Willie Jackson was talking about, you know, Morning Report, the biggest show that there is on RNZ, you know, been 95 years and there's still never been a non-Pākehā host for any of those shows. Well, the challenge is still there, but we are absolutely looking to build capabilities so that all sorts of talent representing all of New Zealand is flowing through into those positions. But, you know, again, Hayden, if I can just gently challenge your sort of focus on presenting roles and radio output, the blossoming of voices and perspectives today are language. And if you just look at RNZ Pacific our um, you know, really highly skilled team uh, covering the Pacific. All of that work is represented not just on air but also in every bulletin. It's in our website, it's through the journalism we do, it's the special programming we do. So we're definitely getting a good flow of diverse content and talent coming through. But we are still, I, I talked at the time of taking baby steps in this regard, we're still taking toddler steps. We're now going to be making sure that we can take bigger strides in the next few years. And my key concern has always been to make sure that as we build that capability into RNZ, that it's locked in and there in a lasting way so that it never goes away. And I hear this um, challenge and criticism from my staff and our audiences all the time, yeah. but we're going to keep working on it. If you were to do a stock take of your just your two, say, flagship news shows and the press gallery, would the makeup of those shows, the staff, uh, the reporters, even the producers, would they reflect the diversity of New Zealand? No, but that does not mean they don't 
bring um, elements of diversity and that they're thorough professionals and that they do a really good job of presenting a, a balanced program that represents all of the news that's happening in New Zealand, including from those communities. But no, no. I mean, if you just look at strictly in those terms, no. Having said that, what specifically are you going to do to address that lack of diversity and what's your deadline for achieving that? Uh, it's an ongoing process. It's not easy. But I think it does come down to those two objectives which I talked about, which is to make sure that our audiences represent all of New Zealand and that our staff represent the audiences that we are there to serve. It is a multi-year ongoing challenge. We have, as I've said before, um, uh, some work that we are going to do to actually understand the makeup of our staff better and make sure that our recruitment and retention um, policies and programs actually help us to achieve that goal of reflecting the people of New Zealand. It's not going to happen quickly, but we are. Um, we think it's really important. It could happen quicker, though. We have many great Māori broadcasters, and RNZ is actually evidence of that, um, and producers. Yes. Could it go quicker? Well, it, it'll go in a way where we make sure that we lock that capability in and it's lasting and enduring. I just want to go back to the presenting just briefly because this is, are, we, are you going to address this, this issue of the makeup of some of these uh, shows? Uh, yes, it's absolutely looking to get the best people into all of those presenter roles, but it goes beyond the presenter roles and I know that that's where your focus is Hayden, but it does go beyond that. It's around every part of the organisation. It's the senior ranks, it's the managers, mm. and it's making sure that they represent and reflect all of New Zealand's uh, population. If you look at our two biggest challenges as an organisation, one is to make sure our audiences reflect New Zealand's diversity, and that's really important because RNZ is the public's broadcaster. We create that essential, commercial-free public space for citizens. The other big challenge is making sure that our staff makeup on both sides of the microphone yeah. from top to bottom reflect all of New Zealand's diversity. Loads of Absolutely, and I, I think I did an interview with Māori TV's head of Gardner, and he actually made that same point that it's probably more important in some ways that there are Māori producers, Māori managers. You know, um, he was talking about Māori, but this is actually, I guess, diverse managers, producers, and leaders like you. So we have, you mentioned Jim Matha, we have this diverse uh, board of governors, but is RNZ's executive team and uh, the ranks of our producers, uh, have you done a stock take of the diversity there? We're doing that work this year. We do need to know who our people are to be able to make some, set some targets to grow the diversity over time. And look, we're not alone in this. Every organisation in New Zealand, not to mention every media organisation, has this challenge. A big part of the challenge is that the people from diverse backgrounds, they're very, very keenly sought after. They have lots of job opportunities and it's hard to recruit and retain them. And that's why things like the Hanare to Ua journalism internship, uh, I think we're now about to go out and get our fourth intern. That, that's so important because we then bring that diverse talent into the organisation. And you, and, you, and you do actually have a strategy. Uh, one of the things that you actually ask for is 80 hours of Māori programming, in, uh, I think a year, 1,000 articles about Māori issues. This is three years ago that these targets were set, but a 1 million page views for Māori stories. How are you measuring up to some of those targets? We're, we're meeting all of those targets and exceeding them in some, in some instances, but the Māori strategy is much bigger and wider than that. It's never been about only about dedicated uh, Māori programming. It's 
that sits in its own part in the schedule. That's important, but it's never only been about that. It's been about making sure that uh, Maori stories, uh, voices, perspectives are part of the fabric of everything we do. And yeah. that, that that's starting to happen. It is happening. But again, I'll point back to that point. I, I, I like to think that it will be enduring. How much of a factor is the pushback from RNZ's mostly older Pākehā audience in terms of how fast these changes are being made? Um, I don't think it's a factor at all. Uh, there's always a tug of war in every media organisation between the existing audiences who you need to look after and cater for and new audiences in the context of changing demographics and ageing audiences. So you always have this tug of war between continuing to do what you do well and looking to do new things. We are striking a balance between those two things, and it's never easy because there's always limited resource. We're a relatively small media company compared with the other major media companies. We're the most trusted media source in New Zealand. It suggests to me we're getting that balance right, but it's something you get up every day and think about again and work on again. Hey, thanks so much for joining me, Paul Thompson. Thank you. RNZ's Chief Executive Paul Thompson talking to Hayden Danell there. And RNZ's most recent Māori strategy is set out in its Statement of Performance Expectations for 2018. And that can be found on RNZ's website. Just look for the tab About RNZ at rnz.co.nz. And finally on Media Watch this week, one of several media figures who picked Judith Collins as their preferred National Party leader lately was News Talk ZB's breakfast host, Mike Hosking. A fortnight ago, he endorsed her as the new John Key, like this. And you get the sense that Judith Collins is exactly the same way, and that generally, those traits and qualities, generally lead to a very, very good leader. And my God, do we need some good leaders in um, this time at the moment. Anyway, that is us. Back tomorrow morning at 6. Look forward to your company. Happy days. But last Wednesday, the happy day after Judith Collins became leader the night before, Mike Hosking wasn't on the air to congratulate her in an on-air chat. He was on holiday for a bit. But after 6am on his show, and again after 7, he did appear as a recording, saying this. Apology from News Talk ZB to John Tamahiri. On 11 December 2018, News Talk ZB published an item concerning payments that have been made by the North Island Fauna Ora Commissioning Agency, Te Pau Matakana. Mike Hosking went on in that apology to say that Newstalk ZB accepts that Fano Ora contractor Epo Matakana was entitled to receive the funds from Tipuni Kokiri, the Māori Development Ministry, and there was nothing improper about what it did with that money. So, what was the problem? The way in which the item was worded could have been taken to mean that John Tamahiri personally benefited from the payments. Newstalk ZB accepts that John Tamahiri did not benefit personally from the payments and sincerely apologises to John Tamahiri. The ambiguously worded item Mike Hosking spoke of there was a Mike's Minute online video published on the ZB website back in 2018 and on the New Zealand Herald site under the headline 600,000 questions about this Fano order payout. Now, that's no longer online and anything Mike Hosking said about it on air has long since gone out into the ether, but three days after the initial comments in December 2018, Mike Hosking published a clarification in another Mike's Minute comment on the News Talk ZB website. 
That was prompted by a lawyer's letter saying John Tamahiri believed Mike Hosking had insinuated that John Tamahiri had improperly received cash from the Crown himself in that transaction. Mike Hosking said he didn't mean that, merely that the money would have been better put back into the Ministry for Social Development for other work in his opinion. But that clarification didn't help. John Tamahiri sued for defamation, and a High Court judge ruled last September that Mr Tamahiri was entitled to costs from Mike Hosking and the Herald's parent company, NZME. And that apology on air last Wednesday was part of the settlement reached by the two parties. That apology was also read out in court on Wednesday, but not by Mike Hosking, who, as we heard, is on holiday. A lawyer for NZME did it instead on his behalf. But John Tamahiri was there to hear it and to tell reporters all this could have been sorted out for the price of a couple of cold ones. In the early stages of this, I asked his bosses to do it the Kiwi way and we'd just sit around a table and have a beer and he can say sorry. So so that didn't happen. So um, the net result is you have to come through this process. But the net result of going through the process was an undisclosed financial settlement that will be a net gain to the Māori Party, of which he is now co-leader. What I can say is that um, a contribution of some significance will be made to the Māori Party election campaign, and we can thank Mike Hoskins for that. Okay? Are, you, are, you, are you joking, or is that for real? No, that's for real. Thank you. And there's an irony in Mike Hoskins' comment ending up boosting the Māori Party's bank balance for the upcoming election campaign. In the run-up to the last one in 2017, he said this on TVNZ's Seven Sharp Show. So is the fact that you're, you can't vote for the Māori Party because you're not enrolled in the Māori electorate, so what are you going to do now? I'm joking. I'm like, what are you even talking about? Now, of course, you don't have to be on the Māori roll to vote for the Māori Party if you want to, and TVNZ accepted that that was inaccurate. But Mike Hosking made it worse with his subsequent clarification on the Seven Sharp Show, blaming the Māori Party for being confused. What I was suggesting, what I was meaning, was that the Māori Party, as their representation stands, is an electorate party. In other words, they are only in Parliament because they've won an electorate seat. Therefore, what I said in referring to voting for them was to vote for them in a Māori electorate, you had to be on the Māori roll, which is true. Now, the fact that anyone can vote for them as a list party, I automatically assume we all knew, given we've been doing it for 20 years, for goodness sake, and it went without saying. So hopefully that clears all of that up. But Radio Watea, the urban Māori station co-founded by John Tamaheres Tafano Owaiparera, got it right at that time in its news. Last night he accused the Māori Party of being confused on the issue. He said it was only in Parliament because it won an electorate seat. In fact, the party's 1.4% share of the party vote last election also got co-leader Marama Fox into Parliament. And the problem here was that Mike Hosking was, at that time, TVNZ's pick to host their live election leaders' debates. This week, Radio Watea reported the developments under the headline Party Party after Hosking caves on Tamahiri defamation and this short, sharp soundbite. And then I think it's a marvellous result. (laughs) Now that's not exactly impartial coverage there from Radio Watea, and it's not a great precedent for our democracy if politicians sue the media and then get to put the proceeds into their political parties. In 2017, when Mike Hosking sounded this warning to his listeners... G'day there, beware the big claim in the game of politics that can come back to bite you in the bum. Three years and one election later, it turns out a big claim has taken a chunk out of Mike's bum and his employers at ZB and the New Zealand Herald, and this time the Māori Party won't mind that much. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back for more Media Watch at the same time next weekend 
here on RNZ National.